There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, you lovely people, and welcome to this week's episode of Blame Murder Club. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly forgot the name of my podcast, I was there like, We're too chill. What's it called? We're too chill. Yeah. That's all it is. To be fair, I don't think we've recorded for about three weeks, have we? No. So that's why. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. Welcome to Blame Murder Club. Hope you've had a lovely week. And this week, I am accompanied, as I always am, with the beautiful lady in front of me. Stomp it. Lauren, hello, hello. How are you? <laughs> Hello, Lauren. I'm good. How are you? Oh, buzzing. I'm very good, thank you. Excellent. I'm pleased to hear it. Energy's up. It is. It's up. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, we're, we're like a little bit into series th- six, aren't we? Series six. I don't know. It's all me. My words are coming out wrong. I apologise. You've been near me. <laughs> I'll just rub <laughs> off on people. <laughs> so, yeah, here we are. I think because we're on episode three, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Episode three, series six yep. um, of um, Bloody Britain. So, um, have you had a good week? I have had a lovely week, my love. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah, it's been good. Weather's nice and warm still. I know we always talk about the weather, blah, blah, blah. But it's sort of like it's middle up. of October nearly. It's still nice and warm. So, it's good, gearing it? up for a school to the weekend. Yeah. 26. Yeah, it's all right. Have you mm-hmm. still got your swimming pool up? No, mm. I'll put it down. It wouldn't be warm enough for a swimming pool. I anyway, don't think but so. No. But I was thinking, yeah. why did I take it down? For fuck's sake. <laughs> well, it was too cold a few months ago. Yeah. So it'd definitely be too cold. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to having a nice, nice, uh, chilled out but hot weekend. So, oh, me yes, too. it'll be good. Woohoo. Yeah, really cool. So, um, today's episode is. We are going to be covering the case of a little boy called Daniel Handley. Um, he was known by everyone who knew him as Danny. And the case is known as the boy on the bike yeah. or the boy on the, M- on the BMX bike. Um, we don't tend to cover children crimes very often. I know we've done one or two, haven't we, over the yeah. time. But it's usually only one that like, we've got like a personal um, reason for it. Like, for instance, when we did our Patreon about um, Danielle Jones, because yeah. she's a local girl, we felt compelled to cover that case. Yeah. And that's the reason why we are covering the case of Daniel Handley today, isn't it, Lauren? It is. I, I grew up with Daniel. I lived literally two streets away from him. Mm. We was in the same kind of 
kid gangs yes. running amok on the estate. I remember it happening. There is a snippet somewhere of me on the news when the reporters all were coming round and we was all behind the news reporter. Wow. Yeah, so there will be a snippet somewhere in the archives of me behind these news reporters. Um, Yeah, I remember so much of it and digging into this case, things that were being said and done, like in the aftermath, which we'll go into, I remember. Mm. I remember being warned about certain people and I remember, yeah, the whole of it. So, yeah, it's going to be... An eye-opener, I yeah. think. Yeah, so that, that explains why we're covering this case. And it's funny because um, Daniel's mum, when she's been interviewed, I've listened, I, I, you close your eyes and she sounds like you. Yeah. It's mad when she she goes, love him. And I know, and I thought, God, that's such a Laurenism. You yeah. always go, love him or love her, don't yeah. you? And that's how Daniel's mum talked, Maxine, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely, there's, there is a reason. So... But yeah, just just a heads up. We are going to be discussing um, obviously paedophilia, mm-hmm. uh, child abduction, and murder. So yeah. it's um, it's not it's a tough one. It's not one. the nicest case to cover. But like I say, we felt particularly Lauren felt um, that we sort of like owed it to him to cover the case. And ever since we've come up with the idea of doing the podcast, mm-hmm. you've had Daniel. Yeah, want you've wanted to cover him, but there hasn't been. This is the first time we've had the opportunity. Yeah. And I've been a bit scared to do him as well because I knew what he entailed and yes. I knew it's horrendous. Yeah. So I, I really need to tell his story and I really want to get it out there, but mm. I was held back quite a bit. Yeah. But now we've got the excuse to do it, kind yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's always going to be tough when you're looking at that, that subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, like you say, it's funny, I know we've said this before on the podcast quite a few times, there's never seems to be any rhyme or reason most of the time why some cases get so much recognition and become household names, yeah. whereas others go under the radar. Because this is one in particular, for instance, you and your husband grew up on the same estate, mm-hmm. but you, your husband don't remember it at all. No, it's a bigger estate, it is big, mm. but he doesn't remember this. He's a year older, so he's Daniel's mm. age. Yeah. Don't remember it at all. And I... I'd never heard of it until you mentioned it. Yeah. And when when we started to look into it, I couldn't believe what a huge case it was. And mm-hmm. yet, I don't remember anything about it. No. This was the biggest missing child investigation that the Met has ever carried out. Yeah. And yet, no one's ever heard of this little boy. No. It's really odd. So, I do think we owe it to Danny and the community and his family. Yeah, 100%. Um, and we'll really hope, listener, we do it, do it justice. Yeah, so. fingers crossed. Yeah. Here we go. Lauren's going to take us back to East London in the 1990s. Thank <laughs> Here you very we go. much. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back there. So, we're in Newham. So, it's the London borough of Newham. And there's a little place called Beckton, situated northeast of the Royal Docks. It was heavily industrialised and the location of the best Beckton Gasworks and the Beckton Marshes. It was next to East Ham on one side and Custom House on the other. There was prefabs built in Cyprus, and that was in Beckton too, and it was used as temporary housing for the gas workers to make a way for permanent housing. There was a buzz in the air, and there was a huge development starting work at the Beckton Ski Slopes, which was built from the debris of the basement of the British Library. Which mm. I thought was quite a good fun fact. I always wondered where that big hill come from. Oh, I used to. I was went skiing mm. there every Saturday. That was my, one of my hobbies. <laughs> oh, I loved it. So you had a the huge, dry ski slope yeah, at Beckton. Yeah, Beckton. You had an ASDA, a doctor's surgery, a boating lake, and a primary school. It was quite big though. It started in 1981 and finished in 1995. 
my family moved into uh, moved into sorry number eight Bellflower Close in 1986 when I was born. So I, that was my first home, just off of Tollgate Road and Columbine Avenue. Um, I was in between the Boating Lake, which was five minutes away, and as they being about 15 minutes away. And according to the census, the population of Beckton is 16,000 people. So it's a big housing estate. This housing estate was massive, full of side roads and alleyways. Um, I loved growing up here. When we were kids, we was all way at playing all day until the street lights come home, and then we knew we had to go home for dinner. There was loads of kids of a, like loads of kids on bikes, scooters, and skates. Even though it was a council stay, it wasn't rough. Crime rates were really, really low, and everything was brand new. Kaz. kind of think of Chevard Hundred, but scale it up quite mm. big. It was a bigger estate. My dad used to refer to it as Toy Town, and you'd get lost really, like, really easily. Mm. There was a massive community spirit, and everyone knew everyone. There was always someone to say hello to or a kid to play with, and generally a safe feeling washed over the whole place. So there was a young boy, but he was a year older than me, and he would hang around the same places and groups, and his name was Daniel Hanley. And as you said, I feel like I owe Daniel to tell his story on here. So... And it was my first brush with true crime. Yeah. So What a brush. I oh, know. It's awful. So Daniel Charles Hanley was born on the 27th of April 1985. And he was the fourth child to Maxine Hanley. His dad, David Hanley, had kept the house what the boys grew up in with his new partner while Maxine moved into La Brala, close off of Columbine Avenue. So literally a street away from me with her new partner, Alex, and the three boys that was by her ex-David. <clears throat> Maxine uh, was a 36-year-old divorced mother of five and would not claim to be an angel. So uh, in her interviews, have you heard her? I'm no angel. Mm. That's what she opens up with. Yeah. And Alex James was a violent drug-addicted man. And kids, when we were younger, we was always warned off of him, mm. even before this. Yeah. He was quite a sight to hold. He was quite fierce looking, very big, mm. but he wasn't quite like, well, he had an IQ of less than 70. He had a personality disorder and he was just plain scary to look at from young eyes. He would be violent to the three boys. Her two older sons had decided to move out as they couldn't stand Alex's violent ways. Once he got into a fit of range when Daniel beat him at a video game and launched himself at the young boy. Maxine found motherhood really hard and she could barely look after herself, let alone the kids. They practically raised themselves. Daniel went to North Beckton Cross Primary School and had a lot of friends on the estate. He would also go into his neighbours for some respite from his home life, just to get away from it all. So only at nine years old, he was a trolley getter at Asda. So, you know, when they go and collect all the trolleys and mm. put them back, he washed cars and windows for extra cash. He used the money he earned to help with the family so they wouldn't starve. All the while, Maxine and Alex would spend their days drinking, taking drugs and just neglecting and abusing the kids. Oh, so here we go. I've put a bit of nice snippet onto it first. <laughs> so the year's 1994. Saturday night by Wickfield was at number one, followed by Bon Jovi Always. Tune. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. That's why I put it in there for you, babe. <laughs> Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump was in the cinemas. 
So we're reaching the Sunday, the 2nd of October. Nine-year-old Daniel was on the main road, which is Tailgate Road. So Tailgate Road runs the whole way through Beckton, from Customers to the East End, uh, East End A, A13 Junction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a busy road. You've got two bus routes on it. Um, yeah, so there's loads of, like, there's a corner shop on it. The boating lakes on it, it's all just this massive road. Um, the street lights have just come on. Um, it's late afternoon, and most of the kids have gone in for their tea, like I said to you, and was getting ready for school the next day. But because it's Sunday, it wasn't a busy road that Daniel's on now. Even though you've got the bus routes and all that, it's Sunday, everything's slowing down, ready, gearing up for Monday. So I'm going to. Move it over to you now, Kaz. I'm so sorry. I love you. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, On the late afternoon of Sunday, the 2nd of October, 1994, nine-year-old Danny had the terrible luck of crossing paths with two very dangerous men, 31-year-old Tim Moores and his partner, 29-year-old Brett Tyler. These men appeared to just be normal, everyday people driving around in their, like, bluish, silvery, grey Peugeot estate, but they were, in fact, predatory and they were convicted paedophiles, the pair of them. Um, poor Danny, he'd spent the day working at the local Asda, helping shoppers with loading and returning of the trolleys for loose change. And once he'd finished that, he went home to play on the karaoke machine at his house before going to play at his friend Alan's house, promising his mum faithfully he'd be back home by six o'clock, um, as it would be getting dark not long after. Now, today is the 6th of October, and mm-hmm. while I've been researching it this week, I've been making a note of how dark it is at six o'clock mm-hmm. and it's still broad daylight at six o'clock but like you say the street lights are starting to come on yeah. so you can see why Maxine has said right yeah six o'clock you've got to be in yeah it makes sense to me um I think I mean it's quarter to seven now and it's getting quite dark I mm-hmm. wouldn't want my nine-year-old out at the moment yeah no. um so although she says she's not an angel I thought she showed she was being a responsible caring parent by putting those Measures in place to mm-hmm. be quite honest. Yeah, of course, go out and play, but as long as you're home by. Yeah. He was only around his friend's house anyway. It's yeah. not like he was out on the streets. Yeah. Um, in the documentary, I watched him and Adam was playing a game called Pogs. Yeah. Did you used to play? Pogs? Yes, we had Pogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew your face would light yeah. up because I'm too old for Pogs. But I've heard Jack Whitehall talk about it on his stand up, and um, oh no, he talks about it in Bad Education, I think Jack Whitehall, and um, and I'm like, oh, I'm too old for Pogs, but I bet Lauren knows. Yeah, you used to get him in Chris. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think and I remember getting him in my crisp and thinking, I have no idea what this is yeah. for. So that's what it was. Yeah, I remember yeah. Tasmanian Devil ones, oh, all different yeah. ones. Yeah, I loved Pogs. Yeah, so yeah, Alan and um, Danny were playing Pogs that Sunday afternoon oh, after, oh. Yeah, after. So yeah, um, got to about, he said um, on his way back home, the two men spotted him on his distinctive silver BMX bike with the seat missing and were delighted as Danny fitted their sick criteria of a boy of around nine to ten years old with blonde hair and blue eyes and of a slim build. So these two men, they've been driving around for about two hours looking for a boy, unaccompanied obviously, who they wanted to abduct. Um, they used the old trick of asking for directions and they pulled over and asked Danny to come over and help them as they were lost. So as Danny approached, they became even more excited as to their delight, he did have blue eyes. So I suppose they could see from the car that he was blonde, white sort of age, but they couldn't see a cover his eyes. He's come over. Danny was described by everyone as really friendly and approachable boy who'd help anyone. And so he didn't bat an eyelid when two strangers beckoned him over and asked him for directions, showing him a map. Mm-hmm. 
Just then, a Moroccan family drove down to Holgate Road and could not help but notice a small boy with a man beside him. There was something about the scene which worried this family. So um, instead of driving straight on, they reached around about and they circled back so they can drive past and just mm-hmm. check that everything's all right. Take another look. Moors and Tyler, the two men in the car, they saw, they noticed this. So Tyler quickly thanked um, Danny and he got back in the car. Daniel rode off towards his home and the Moroccan family were reassured that all was well after all. And obviously Moors and Tyler drive off. Yeah. Moors and Tyler, however, had, en- had enough of being frustrated as this was supposed to be the ultimate fantasy. And yet again, time and time again, when they went out on these humping, hunting trips, they usually re- they always returned empty-handed as the boy was usually the wrong shape or size or age or there'd be an adult that got in the way. So... As the Moroccan family drove off, the silver blue Peugeot followed the boy on the bike into the darkness. And just over four hours later, at quarter to 11 at night, Maxine Handley, um, Danny's mum, would call the police to report that her nine-year-old son, Daniel, had failed to come home. At 6.30 that evening, this winds me up a bit, this little bit here, but at 6.30 that evening, Maxine's boyfriend, Alex, had been out and he had seen Danny on the street um, and Danny was repairing the chain on his bike and Alex said to Danny to hurry up home so as not to worry his mum. And and I just thought, like, what sort of adult sees a nine-year-old struggling to get a chain on a bike and just goes, hurry up, and walks off and leaves him? Like, if Alex had been... If Alex had just literally just stayed with him and helped him with his bike and then walked back, none of this would have happened. Yeah, he'd still be here. It's awful, isn't it? Yeah. It's absolutely... Un- but then also, another little boy would have been in Danny's place because these men were not <coughs> going to give up... They were yeah. on a mission, big yeah. time. I'm just going to talk a little bit about these men and um, how they came to end up doing this particular deed. So, Timothy John Moores, the thick-set, muscular man, behind was the man behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. Tim Moores, age 31, and he was born in Islington in North London, and he was the son of a postman. He'd spent 18 months in the army and was now leading an apparently stable and respectable life. He followed a regular routine, spending most of each week in a small town called Bradley Stoke, just north of Bristol, where he ran a flower shop called Green Fingers. And at the weekends, he worked as a taxi driver for a place called Guy's Cars, which is in Camberwell, South London. So he split his time between London and Bristol, mm-hmm. which I found really odd. I mean, I they're quite far away. you said that. <laughs> I struggled with this part the whole time. There is a reason. Do you want to oh, know? Oh, yes, please. I'll tell you later on, okay. actually. But okay. there is a there is a reason because I was a bit like, that's yeah. weird. It's quite far away, isn't it? Bristol from London. Yeah, and I was getting whiplash yeah. going back yeah. and forth, back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to have a quick look on maps to see how far away it is while I read I the rest of this out? Yeah. Me. Oh, no worries. It's quite far anyway. Yeah. It's a few hours. <laughs> it's um, a few... <laughs> it's, it's uh, one of the miles. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So he's... Um so, yes, his uh, Moore's closest friends knew that he was gay and that he lived with an older man called David Guttridge, who was age 58 at the time. And he was described as a businessman with silver hair and he owned a guy's cars. And he'd also loaned Moore's the money to open his flower shop in Bristol, mm-hmm. where they lived. They were well liked by their neighbours and um, no one saw any problem with Tim Moore's and his elderly boyfriend. I think 58, is that elderly? <laughs> I don't know. I know. Maybe 94 that he was. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, you know, nowadays yeah. 58 is not elderly, is no. it? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so apparently Moz was, he used to encourage the children, like the local kids in Bristol, to come into the florist and play with the helium, you know, and it makes your voice go all squeaky yeah. and stuff. And sometimes he'd employ them to deliver leaflets out on their bikes and whatnot. And no one saw anything wrong with that. They just thought, oh, you know, it's the gay florist. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. I didn't think anything. Yeah. No one who saw him, now sitting calmly behind the wheel of the Peugeot, would have guessed that Tim Moore's had a history of sexually abusing children. And that nine years earlier, on the 29th of November 1985, he'd been jailed for seven years for sexually assaulting two twin boys who he was supposed to have been babysitting at the time. Jesus. And the boys, they were only nine when the truth came out. Mm. Um, and I don't know why this is, it happens time and time again. But even though he was jailed for seven years, his sentence was reduced to five years. Oh, and always reoffended, And that's what annoys me. It's most. mad. Yeah. We come across this all the time on the pod, don't we? Yeah. Very all violent, very violent, dangerous people just get out early for a good behaviour. And I do yeah. wonder, I think, well, maybe they behave themselves in jail because they want to get out so they can carry on their rampage, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it don't take a rocket science to figure it out, does it? No, not at all. They're not rehabilitated. They're just desperate to carry on mm-hmm. wrecking lives and being selfish and stuff. Um, in jail, he set, he shared a cell with another convicted paedophile called David Guttridge. So this is the businessman. So this is how these two met. David Guttridge was a 58-year-old businessman and obviously much older than his boyfriend, Tim Moores. Guttridge too, he was also in there for sexually abusing children, um, two boys and a girl. And um, it says here he'd had trouble with the oldest boy and he'd sort of like beat him a little bit so he was serving time for ABH as well as child abuse but Guttridge was different in one way he wanted to stop so he'd only been sent to jail because he'd gone to a psychiatrist and confessed and then the psychiatrist advised him to the only way to begin his cure was by coming clean and going to the police Mm -hmm. and so he did he put his hands up to it went to the police and it cost him his wife and his children 
they left him. They never spoke to him again. Um, and obviously he was jailed for quite a long time. So he seemed like he did want to be rehabilitated. He was yeah. holding his hands up and, and asking for help. Mm-hmm. And it cost him everything that he did it. Um, so he was um, at Wormwood Scrubs. And even when he left prison, when, they were, when he was discharged from prison, he continued going to psychiatrist practice and he slowly succeeded in controlling his, um, you know, his urges towards yeah. uh, sexual urges to children. So it seems like he got it under control. Um, he, Guttridge, he tried to persuade Moores and Brett Tyler to do the same. Brett Tyler once went to therapy, but he never went back. Um, he didn't mind because he wanted, he didn't, he didn't wanted Tyler out of the picture. Um, he wanted Moores all to himself. Right. He classed him as his boyfriend. He loved him. He didn't want Tyler sort of getting in the way. Um, but Moores, he went to therapy, but he made a nonsense of it. Instead of trying to change his mentality, he would boast to the group of his previous conquests and then recite in detail the extent of his fantasies. So kind of like glorifying it a little bit, sounds like, reliving it. Yeah. Um, while Guthridge settled down to the life of a businessman with Tim Moores as his living partner, Moores and Tyler secretly set out to find children on whom they could practice their um, obsession. Fuck's sake. In 92, Moores visited Guttridge's psychiatrist and confessed that he was concerned that he'd reoffend and that he was still actively interested in boys. And then he did tell that psychiatrist this, his fantasy, which would culminate in the um, crime against Daniel. Uh, the third person in this sorry tale is a man called Brett, Brett Tyler, who was born um, in Islington, London, the son of a lorry driver. And he met Moores and Guttridge in the early 90s in the segregation wing of Wormwood Scrubs Prison in West London. Um, they had been sent to the segregation wing to protect them from other prisoners. Tyler, in particular, had been badly beaten once his offence became known to other inmates. Of course he's going to. They're all fucking nonces. Of course they're going to get beat. Yeah, I think they separate them all the time now. Yeah. Like as a path, of course, they'll just separate the nonsense cases from the other inmates because they can't keep them safe, can they? He was also a bit of a prison for a bit of a problem for the prison officers because he would self-harm. He'd cut himself all the time. Right. It sounds like a part of him was disgusted with himself, but yeah. he just didn't seem to want to do anything to stop it. So, yeah, they would like... I think the um, officer that was interviewed on the programme that I watched, he said they never considered him as a suicide risk as such, but he did cut himself quite badly, but not quite badly enough to think suicide, if yeah. you see what I mean. But yeah. he weren't fucking around with his cell phone by the sounds of it. Yeah, so... Yeah. This sounds like a person who's completely messed up. Yeah. As well. Um, so Tyler had been arrested for indecency with young boys and he'd been sentenced to four years in prison. And these three people all meet at prison <laughs> and that's the thing as well if you put them in a segregated wing mm. they're all gonna meet and join forces that's they, why they you get pedo of, rings it yeah. fucking makes me angry they wind, they wind each other up yeah. and feed into each other's obsession yeah but in this story every every single thing i've seen it seems like guttridge was doing his best to rehabilitate yeah. himself and to help his boyfriend as well yeah but i think moore's was just beyond screwed up yeah totally beyond screwed up in October 1994, Brett Tyler was working every hour available at, um, I think he worked at another minicab firm in London mm-hmm. as the controller to earn money. So he would take the money to his real life, which was in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So for the humble wages of a minicab controller in this country, it would buy you enormous wealth over in the Philippines mm-hmm. um, and respect. So he lived in luxury with his boyfriend, a Philippine national called Rolando Reyes. Um, 
unfortunately, he chose his country so he could ba- behave how he liked with his sexual desires towards children. Um, while living there, he posed as a priest, so he would have like Sunday things and get the kids to come over and because he was posing as a priest the parents trusted him he was quite a big figure in the community because he had quite a lot of wealth so Mm. if there was ever any allegations he would just pay them off and things like that so basically sounds like a bit of a Gary Glitter kind of situation I was just going to say he's in Gary Glitter's gang yes because that was sorry he does the same very angry again don't blame you he does it's the same thing but in Thailand it's like these people they take all their wealth and they're um, like he became friendly with in the local community with people with authority figures and stuff like that because because of how wealthy he was yeah and you know just bought his way i think yeah. so and became quite untouchable when he was out there so. so it's the easy availability of desperately poor children that attracted him to the philippines um like yeah there's there's all sorts of nasty things about that which i'm not going to go into because wow <laughs> there's no point it's yeah. not going to move the story forward and it's pretty grim yeah um so, once leaving prison, Guttridge and Morse lived in a flat above Guy's cars. And unknown to Guttridge, Morse was soon up to his own ways and he groomed and abused an 11-year-old boy. So, you're right. The second he gets out of prison, mm-hmm. he's re-offending. Straight away. When the boy and his parents moved to Bristol, Morse persuaded Guttridge to lend him money so he could open a flower shop in Bristol. No. So, eventually, the couple moved to Bristol and worked in the florist during the week and then returned to London at the weekends to work the cab business. So, that's why they moved to Bristol. So he could be closer to the boy he was abusing. Yeah, exactly. So, um... Fucking hell. Yeah, apparently local boys, they would come in, you know, like, we used to do it when we was little, because there weren't many places to mm-hmm. go when you were young, so you'd just hang around the local minicab if it was raining, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. just perhaps get friendly with the controller so you could just hang out and have a place to sit. Well, people done that there, so they'd encourage the boys to come in. I think they had a few slot machines in the yeah. control room and stuff, and they'd just encourage them to come in and sometimes grooming and things like that and apparently there was two separate complaints to social workers from boys who said they'd been indecently assaulted at guys cars but no no further action i think neither of the boys wanted to actually go to the police and formally make a complaint so but there's already red flags popping up yeah everywhere i, I think if they'd gone to the police they would have taken one look at their men's records and hoisted them back they probably would have been out on a license or something yeah. wouldn't they yeah hopefully um, it's just cases like this you can look back and think Flipping neck, if someone had done X, Y, Z. Yes, anything, something. Yes, exactly, it's just, yeah, yeah. hindsight is, it's easy to say, isn't it, in yeah. hindsight. So there we have it, Lauren, that is what happened on the day, and that is the men that did it. Right. Um. So yeah, I think this brings us up to the investigation. Yes, so, two days after, Daniel's gone missing, two local boys from the estate come forward to police and told them they had just found... Daniel's bike in the bushes just around the cold corner from Tollgate Road but they had taken it so that's why no one could find his bike for the two days after because they'd taken it thinking oh we've got like of course you're gonna mm. kids see a bike in the bush yeah we're gonna have it yeah I think Gil or mum made them come forward to the police and say we found the bike we've taken it so the police got the boys to show them exactly where they found it and it was literally just off of the Tollgate Road um, the police who first thought Daniel had run away on his bike started to worry and as concerned built for Daniel, they started to look closer to home. The police were asking for sightings of Daniel his, and his picture was on the, all the front of the local newspapers and on the local news, which I remember all this. It was everywhere. We as kids were um, told we weren't allowed, so I lived on a 
in a cul-de-sac. So from post to post, I weren't allowed past my front door at this moment in time. No kid was going out how he was. We didn't have the freedom of what we just had because of this, because Daniel's gone missing. No one can go out. You can imagine, can't you? Yeah. Um. So, sorry, there's foot... Oh, so, uh, sorry. So, within a week um, of them putting these photos out... They only had one sighting that seemed legit over it, and that of a man in the car who'd seen Daniel get into a silver Peugeot 405. The lead on this case was Detective Ed Williams, and um, he made a plea on Crime Wash, asking anyone who could help, please call. They had asked anyone who'd seen the car or anyone driving the car. Within days, they got 138 calls, and they started to follow up on every single one of them calls because they had no leads, they had nothing. The police came to another dead end and the trial was going cold. They tried divers in the Thames and the docks to try and find him. They were visiting home of no paedophiles in and around the local area but still come up with nothing, not even a whiff of Daniel, his clothing, anything. So they're still looking hard and fast and by December 94, Maxine and her partner Alex was both questioned at the local police station after a woolly hat that was seen worn by Daniel at 7pm the night he went missing by a friend was then seen in their house. So then they've the police have gone full force for, for, forensically, I'm so sorry I couldn't get out, <laughs> testing the house. And then they also went to the local lake. So we had a boating lake about five minutes next to us. And they went to the lake and start search, searching there. The couple were under the suspicion of the disappearance of Daniel. The police was desperate by now and they thought Alex could have harmed Daniel in a temper and Maxine would have helped hide him. And I remember this part quite well. I remember the whispers and the gossips that was going around and to stay clear of Alex and Maxine. Mm. If you was alone and if you see either one of them, not to go near them, alert anyone. So I always had my neighbours keeping an eye on me. If my mum was at work, do you know what I meant? Like everyone had an eye on and nowhere was to go. No one was to go to that point. It was like a little cul-de-sac on the opposite side and no one was to go down there. Mm. We weren't allowed there. Um, however, we were now... No, that wasn't the case. So they both denied allegations. They were both released when no further evidence was found. However... Alex was later charged with offences committed to the other children, uh, to other children, and was kept in the psychiatric ring of Pentonville Prison. And Maxine was on remand and was charged with similar offences under the Children's Act. So, if it wasn't them, then who? We know now. The police were stumped. So, in Bristol, on a small golf course, on March twenty seventh, nineteen ninety five, six months on. A man walking his dog stumbled upon what he thought was a whole safe old child safety helmet. It's always the dog walker, curse, isn't it? I agree. It's always the dog walker. Always. When on looking more closely, he safely realised that this was a small skull. He called the police, and when they arrived, they found the red jumpsuit next to the hat of the skull with the word champion wrote on it. It was the exact same item of clothing that Daniel was wearing when he went missing. They run dental records, which confirmed that this was Daniel. They formed more bones near where the skull was located. This was where the police needed to, to gear their search. 
So then they make another appeal on Crime Watch, which gave them new leads, and they did follow everyone. One lead said they saw a boy dressed in the red jumpsuit, really distressed, being pulled along by two men down a Bristol road. Another said that they saw the boy and three men in January in a calf and that he looked like he wasn't there of his own accord. So, light bulb's gone. They're like, this is recent. January, this is really recent. Was he alive until January? Like, so that, that, and they're looking for the three men. So, this, we know now that it wasn't Daniel that was spotted. <coughs> but some sort of fate, I think, steps in here to trigger them that they need to be looking for three men. Yeah. I don't know why, but because of this, this is what they start to look at. The police was giving great detail of the men, and because of this, they had a prime suspect um, after a composite sketch was given to the press. So by this time, Maxine was told in early 95, after six months of torment, that her boy's body had been found. And I'm quoting her. She says, I dream I hear his voice calling me. She has created a shine to Daniel, uh, Daniel's Mary in the bedroom of the flat where she lives now in Essex, hoping to build a home for her family. A few days after the second crime was appeal was um, released, they released the script. Oh, I'm so sorry. They released the sketch and psychiatrists phoned in to say it looked like one of her older clients, David. Um, he was battling between himself, this psychiatrist, between confidentiality, patient client confidentiality because it was so serious he's rung the police and say this looks like david he'd obviously you've said come to a group sausage and he was being held that he was worried that he may arm other children and he was also worried about his friend tim um, and what he would do to young children in london he specifically said in london and this was in Bristol by now, right? Mm -hmm. So he had referred Tim and Tim's partner to the same psychiatrist. There was also a prison warden named Edward Cook who came forward at the time and Tim Moores was serving, like you said, um, for child abuse and was due for release saying that Tim fit the profile and composite and spoke of doing the crime exactly like the one of Daniel, a blonde-haired nine-year-old boy. Tim Moores had boasted that he had a great fantasy of sexual abuse towards a little boy to the therapist and thought Tim was just trying to shock him and that he wouldn't really go through with it. However, it also disclosed that him and David was running a minicab service in London and this is where it came together for the psychiatrist and he thought, you know what, I'm going to have to tell him now because it's all a bit too mm. near the mark, isn't it? It's all just a bit too much. So... The police knew they had them. They saw the past crimes of each of them and that they worked as taxi drivers in and around the area where Daniel lived. They had an apartment close proximity where Daniel went missing. Tim also had a flower shop in Bristol. So they had the, like me and you said, at first, when you first glance at this, you're like, why Bristol, why London? Mm. They've got two businesses. Yeah, they've mm. got two businesses in the major points of this crime so they know they've got these guys mm. so um tim's flower shop actually closed its doors the day daniel was found tim morris and brett fled to the philippines after hanley's death 
But when Tim returned to London the, oh, the day the child's body was found, on May 30th, he was quickly arrested on suspicion of murder alongside his boyfriend, David. However, Brett Tyler had to be extradited back to England to stand trial because he's in the living it up in the Philippines. All three men made detailed confessions. It was Brett who broke first. One of the killers later recalled the feeling of sexual excitement. I don't like it, sorry. When I grabbed his body and pushed him into the car, the feel of being caught and the excitement that we might get away with it was like the fantasy I'd always dreamt of. David said that after seeing his car on crime watch, he asked the other two if they were involved, which led them to confess to him six months after Daniel first went missing. So this is David's side of the story. Dave then gave Tim the money to fly to the Philippines with Brett. And then when Daniel's body, because they're panicked, so he's giving the money to just go and get away from it. So, yeah, a, a, a betting. Aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So he started to panic, sorry. Tim asked the police why it took so long, why they took so long to find him, because he's been expecting them for a while. Tim and Brett were both charged with murder, and the boyfriend, David, was charged with assisting the offender. Brett, while in custody, suffered with a mental breakdown and tried to commit suicide while awaiting trial. In May... Uh, on May the 17th, 1996, the Old Bailey jury took less than two hours to reach a unanimous verdict of guilty against Daniel's killers, Timothy Morris, 33, Brett Tyler, 30. They were sentenced to life imprisonment, effectively meaning that they would be remaining in prison until at least 2045. So they're still there now. Judge, judge. Trial judge Mr Justice Curtis described them as evil vultures and recommended they should never be freed. They were serial child sex offenders. Maxine was at the heart of the campaign and being run by her closest friends, Jill Turner and Kathy Frost. They are seeking to change the law so that paedophiles are named within their communities. Paedophiles? Oh, sorry. <laughs> paedophiles. I can't do it. <laughs> you know, paedophiles. <laughs> are named with their communities and their pictures are displayed for all to see. It's a system used, as we know, in America. Signatures include those of Terry Venables and Frank Bruno. <laughs> she says, I know nothing can bring back Danny back to me, but I'd like to know that other children might not have to suffer what my Danny went through and other parents may be spared my nightmares. Mm. In April 2012, the European Court of Human Rights declared a war afterwards that the minister's role in sentencing was unlawful. So now Morris has applied to the High Court in London so a judge can decide how much longer he should serve. The move has brought a fresh anguish for Daniel's family. Daniel's younger brother, David, who's 24, has launched an online petition opposing any move to release Morris early. He's also campaigning in support of the petition on Facebook and visiting East London schools to get publicity on the family's case. For now, they're still remaining in prison, but if mm. they get this appeal, who knows? Yeah, so they've been in jail 20 seven years mm -hmm. or 20 probably more than that 28 years mm -hmm. now yeah good but yeah 2045 so <clears throat> oh, 12 years yet. time yeah 2045. they're due out but if they get this pro because mm. they're saying it's against human rights or something but no i think they need our whole life sentence the pair of them 
Yeah. That's... They're going to come out and reoffend. Yeah, definitely. It's always it's always the um, people like like that that appeal against their sentencing. It doesn't like show that they. Um, I mean, they've been proven guilty. It's not like there's a possible case of miscarriage of justice. No, exactly. Here. They did it. Mm-hmm. They've confessed to it. Mm-hmm. I've got all the confessions here. Actually, we can go go into in a minute. Yeah. Um, and yet they still want to get out. No, that's not showing remorse in my no book. No way, Jose. No. I think they should stay put as long as yeah. the judge tells them to stay put. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And um, the minister you was referring to is David Blunkett. Back, that's when, oh, it, really? it was when he was the Home Secretary. He's the one who put that on. And the European Court of Human Rights said that it was unlawful for David Blunkett to have done that. Why? So that's what that... Fuck knows, but we're not in the EU anymore, so they can't interfere. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Have that's well. the only good thing, breakfast. Breakfast, yes. Breakfast has <laughs> brought to us. So, yeah, at least they can't interfere. But, but it was... Um, I think it was the European Court for Human Rights that, that was um, that the Jeremy Bulger killers appealed to. As yeah, well. it was. So it's it's good that we don't that they can't interfere with us anymore. Yeah, definitely. Because um, you know why why should they? Mm. Why should some judge in fucking Brussels decide what happens to someone who killed a child in London? Yeah, it's fucking nothing to yeah. do with them. They need to back their shit up. Yes, precisely, Lauren. Let's hear these confessions then. So here we are. So first of all, they arrested. David Guttridge. Mm-hmm. So what happened after the body of um, Danny was found on the golf course in Bristol, the police start doing ha- house to house. So now this is a police inquiry for um, Somerset Police mm-hmm. and obviously the Met. So they all join forces. And um, so they start doing house to house near the golf course. <clears throat> and it's found on, I think it's the biggest housing estate in Europe. <laughs> this is called Stoke something wow. i've got it written down here somewhere i'll find it on my notes in a second but yeah it's a massive but anyway they start doing house to house and while they are this woman approaches a policeman in the car and says i think you should look at these three men and she gives them their names and that's the first time they those men's really? names come up and she says they drive the right like the car they, this is the car they drive they work in london they work here she seems to know a lot about them. She knew that they were convicted pedos. Really? Yeah, so immediately the, the policeman who takes her statement phones the DCI and um, and just says, you've got to look into these people. Mm-hmm. These look. And, of course, all the pieces fit. You know, they are... Because when um, Daniel went missing, 
the gut instinct of um I think it was DR Williams who was in charge was it it was a child abduction with sexual mm-hmm. or sexual meaning like purpose. He his gut instinct was this is a classic. When the um two weeks after Daniel went missing, they put it on Crime Watch mm-hmm. and the Moroccan family came forward. They were the ones who who noticed Daniel and mm-hmm. the car and gave mm-hmm. the description of the car. And the, yeah, like I say, the man in charge, he just felt that's a classic um, yeah. paedophile abduction. It's very unlikely that Daniel's run away from home or anything like that. And as time went on, it became less and less likely. Yeah. So um, they did feel that. So what they did, they they um, they searched the, prim- the radius of a thousand metres from where he went missing of all the known paedophiles mm-hmm. and interviewed them and all that sort of thing. And um, and this is the thing, Lauren, it's like like the um, prison warden. You get, there's probably quite a large amount of pedos we don't really yeah. know, but I think there's quite a lot of them. But most of them don't want to murder as well. Yeah. They just want to do the sexual abuse. They, mm-hmm. It's very rare and that's why it's stuck in the prison guard's mind because he said it's, virtually unheard of for any of the offenders in here when they're talking about their fantasy and stuff to include murder of a child they just talk about wanting to like interfere Mm -hmm. with them and he actually said to Moores when he did that when he talked about that in the group therapy um was like you realize you're talking about just throwing away the body of a child like a you like it's a used condom and Moores went yeah he just didn't care it's always, he's pretty vile. Fucking hell. Um, yeah, so they did that and then nothing come up. Um, all of the like sex offenders were like, no, we don't know anything. And they all had alibis and that. So then they expanded it to 2,000 metre radius and interviewed everybody within mm-hmm. there. And nothing came up. They all had alibis. They weren't, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I think there was something like 200 policemen was on this case. They were looking, you know, you mentioned the lake. Mm-hmm. They were divers in the lake. Mm-hmm. They were checking everywhere in the whole local area. And obviously they, they weren't going to find him, were they? No. Um, and, well, this is why. Because, so Guttridge, they eventually, they, they arrest Guttridge, David Guttridge, and he tells them everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he told DR Williams' team how eight months earlier... Moores had seen the police talking about his car on Crime Watch and he confessed to him that him and Tyler had been involved. And he refused to believe the truth, even though Moores kept repeating his confession. So he's telling him all the time, but Guttridge was like, he just didn't want to yeah. believe it. Um, Moores lost his head when Daniel's body was found and begged him to lend him the money to escape to the Philippines with uh, Brett Tyler until he was hoping it would all die down. He only spent a couple of weeks in the Philippines and then he came back. <clears throat> so then they arrest um, Moores. Then mm-hmm. they arrest him Moores. And yeah, like you say, they pulled him up outside the taxi firm that he worked. Yes. And um, yeah, the first thing he said was, I can't believe it's taking you so long to catch up with me. But um, it turned out, I think, the um, database for all of these like local sex offenders in the area was not kept up to date. There was large gaps in it and a yeah. lot of the information was out of date. So the fact that these two men, like Moores and Guttridge, had been released from Wormwood Scrubs into the community, it wasn't recorded anywhere. So no. they were under the radar. It was, um, yeah, it's a, just a, a bit of a shit show with all the admin and stuff, to be honest. Yeah. It always is. You always find these massive cases. The devil's in the detail. 
Yeah, and I think back in them days, wasn't it? It wasn't a computerised system, so it was all wrote down. Like, do you remember the doctor's surgeries back in the day? Yeah. Where it was all written down, it wasn't on the computer. Mm. So one station would have all the details of that local offender. Well, it was only 94. They would have had a database because they created that after the Yorkshire Ripper, which was the 80s. Oh. So they would have had it. But but it just wasn't maintained very well. No, it wasn't maintained very well. And there's... I've read loads and loads of stuff on it, and, and it's like no one really took uh, child sexual offence oh, no. as seriously as like the other stuff, you know, like the bank robbers yeah. and all that. No one, you can understand it. Who's going to be like, like, you go through your police academy, get your stripes, right? Hands up who wants to be on the yeah. child, you know, well, I should imagine. Yeah. It's a very, very important job. But no one probably wants no, to do it. No, it's a stressful job. Um, I mean, they should do it. It's not an excuse no. at all. But it, that's the kind of you can kind of see why in a way. Yeah. But yeah, that, so that's why they, like it was all out of date. All the information wasn't very good. Yeah. Um. So they arrest him, was, and at first he refused to cooperate. He just keep saying no comments. So they say to him, Guthrie just said this. Guthrie just said that. Why did you say? I can't believe it's taking you so mm-hmm. long to catch up with me. Mm-hmm. All he's saying is no comment. So the detectives decide to change the interview team over. And there's a DCO who's on the documentary. Um, big up to the documentary, actually. BBC made it and released it in 96, just after the conviction. Wow. So I think they must have been waiting for the conviction and then they put it out. Mm-hmm. And I think it was called Daniel Handley, A Life Stolen. Oh. It's a really good documentary. It's got all the, the de- detectives in it. And then there's um, re- reenactments and everything. It's very, very good. Um so yeah, listeners, I can definitely recommend that. It's on YouTube for free. But yeah, they decided to swap the teams over. I suppose they must have detected a little bit of animosity and he weren't given mm-hmm. an inch. And they said um, to DCI, Chris Byrne, I've, has anyone fingerprinted him yet? And he went, no. He went, oh, why don't you go and fingerprint him and just have a chat with him? Like, don't talk to him over a table in an interview room. Mm-hmm. Just have a chat with him while you're fingerprinting him. So they did that. And they was having a coffee while he was being fingerprinted. And Moz goes, oh, do you mind if I just finish my coffee before we go back in? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. And they just started to chat. And Byrne said later how he tried to appear friendly and sympathetic to Moz. He was hiding his disgust and revulsion about how matter-of-fact and calmly Moz described what they'd done to try and encourage Moz to talk about it. He thought, you know, if I show that I'm disgusted, he's going to clam up. And he described how the conversation was so matter-of-fact it could have just been two men discussing a football match over a pint of beer. That's what he said. Um, and even though the confession was off the record, of course, he just confessed to a policeman everything that had Jesus, happened. Jesus, yeah. And the following morning, he was formally charged with the murder of Daniel Hanley. Um, they got the car. So, and forensics found irrefutable evidence in the car that Daniel had been in that, in that Peugeot. Car. Yeah. So now they're going after Tyler in the Philippines. Um, the police had to tread very carefully as the Philippines is outside of their jurisdiction and extradition extradition is extremely tricky mm-hmm. um it was they were worried it was if he, if he went in there like with like a bully in a china shop sort of thing if they weren't diplomatic about it the whole case could just collapse mm-hmm. so it was really important that they handled it the right way discretion was also key as there was every chance tyler may have bribed some of the officials because they know yeah. he's, he's a big he's a big chase out there yeah, you know he's, a big player he's got friends there, yeah. in high places um or if the locals found out they may take the law into their hands and just Kill rip him. him to pieces yeah kill him exactly I so i wouldn't mind that option to be fair. <laughs> exactly a bit rip like him um, limb from limb yeah like the night stalker yeah mm. yeah they give him a few bangs over the head didn't they yeah. before he got arrested yeah 
uh, DCI Steve Kavanagh flew out to uh, the Philippines and there he met with a senior law enforcement official. It was imperative to tread carefully so as not to jeopardise the case back in England. However, once the official was presented with a list of offences that Tyler had already been mm-hmm. convicted of in the UK, he just agreed to deport Tyler. He was like, I don't want him to be my problem. I'm deporting yeah, him. good. Take the fucker. Don't want him. The arrest, when it happened, came as a complete surprise. And um, the policeman said, like, they've knocked on Tyler's door and he was not expecting two pale-faced... UK policeman on his doorstep. So he was completely on the back foot. Um, So Tyler's confession at this point is believed to be the most truthful account of what had happened because he'd had no time to make anything up. Um, He said ever since the day, he has been seeing Daniel's face everywhere. He's been haunted by it. Um, He admitted everything and he confirmed that Guttridge had nothing to do with it. So basically he backed up David Guttridge's um, account of what had happened as well. In a long and detailed confession, Brett Tyler described how he and Moores had taken the boy to the office of Guy's cars and took him to the flat upstairs. Um, and then they took it in turns to sexually abuse um, Danny while they videoed each other doing it. And then they told him they were going to take him home. So they put him in the back of the car, drove off. But they were actually driving on the M4 towards Bristol and Danny fell asleep. Um, when they pulled over in a lay bar on the way up there, uh, Danny woke up and he said, oh... Um, are we home now? Am I home yet? And they said, oh, no, not yet. And then they uh, strangled Daniel in the back of the car. Jesus. So Daniel, literally the whole thing took probably four hours or something from, so. It weren't him. It was quick. Path, no, yeah. there was there all those sightings of him were false alarms, even though coincidentally it led to the capture yeah. of, of the men. Because the case had gone completely cold. By the time Daniel's body arrived, they had no leads in London no. at all. It, they, they These men could easily have got away with it. Um, Which is fucking scary. It is, isn't it? Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, that was that was it. But it was a bit of a creepy thing, actually. When they went to his house in um, the Philippines, mm. he had adopted two young children. Oh, no. A little girl and a little boy. He called the little boy Brett Tyler Jr. And the little girl he called Jeanette. And I think his house in the Philippines was near a, an active volcano and because the kids, apparently they were orphans, their parents had died in the eruption. Mm. And because um, Tyler's such like a, you know, important man in the community, he was just allowed to adopt them without any form- formalities really. Fucking hell. And um, yeah, they'd both been abused and he had this habit of videotaping everything he did. So it was obvious what he'd been doing with the kiddies and... Um, and the little girl, this is the really sad thing, she was actually, she'd been struck deaf and dumb mm. at, at the death of her family. So she was his perfect victim. Fucking hell. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, that was it. It seems like, it seems like Moore's was the driving force behind it. It'd been his fantasy for years and years and years because he was discussing it in prison in the mm. very late early, early 90s. Yeah. And um, obviously he acted on it at the end of 1994. It seems like Tyler, very damaged person. He, like you say, he tried to take his mm-hmm. own life, didn't he? He was constantly mm-hmm. self-harming, haunted all the time by Daniel. He said he saw his face everywhere. And then there's David Guthridge, who <clears throat> just, I don't know, fell in love with the wrong man, I think. Yeah. Was always trying to do the right thing by everybody. But, yeah, yeah, it's just um, it's a fucked up tale yeah it's a harrowing case absolutely harrowing yeah it is but thank god they managed to catch him before they could yeah. do it again because like i say this man's 
fantasy was so strong and he'd held on to it for so many yeah. years, maybe he would have wanted to do it again. Reoffend. Yeah, yeah, there's every chance that that one wouldn't have satisfied him. Yeah. Thank God they caught him anyway. Yeah. But um, Let's hope they don't let the bastards out. Yes, yeah, I, I do hope not. I don't think that the world would be safe with people like no. that in it. I think they're safer just behind bars yeah. and just stay there, just stay yeah. put, don't take the risk. No. Or if they do let them out, like put one of those things on their ankles so they can be tracked all the time and yeah. then say they're not allowed within a certain vicinity of schools and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. if they're in their cab office and a kid yeah. fucking walks in, how are they going to know they're near a kid? Yeah, that is true, actually. Don't yeah. let them out. No, no, you're right. Absolutely. Burn the bastards. <laughs> Sorry. Throw away the key. Yep. So how do you feel, Lauren? Do you feel like um, you've done injustice? I hope so. Yeah. I had a few slip-ups, but I hope so. No. God love him. Let's put him to rest. He's a lovely-looking little boy, wasn't he? He really was. And he was Proper right. cheeky. He was. Mm. He was a right cheeky chapper, wheeler-dealer, yeah. always trying to earn a bit of money. And- yeah. Yeah, I've got that him. picture of him when I was reading about him. I just thought, oh, he sounds like a proper little... Um, Eastern oh, boy. who's the one out of Oliver Twist? Oh, well, the Artful Dodger. Oh, yeah. I just yeah. thought, he's a proper little Artful Dodger. He is. Even the fact he didn't have a saddle on the seat of his bike, I just thought, oh, he's a proper little bruiser. Yeah, he is. Yeah, love him. Yeah. love him. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening, everybody. We uh, hope you've enjoyed um, today's episode. Yeah. Oh, and uh, persevered with it. Yeah. If anything else. <laughs> uh, before we go, we'd just like to do a big shout out to our lovely patrons. Thank you, patrons. We love you. Yes. So we've got Patreon Vicky, Patreon Charlotte, Patreon Ali Moo, Patreon Becky. Hey. So yeah. Thank you, girls. We appreciate you. Love you. <laughs> Long time. Love you, Lauren. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, I did it wrong. It's <laughs> okay. I'm with you. So, yeah, have a lovely week, everybody. Um, please say hello to us on our social media. We're all over the place, aren't yes, we? Yes, we'll say hello. Hey, girl, hey. Yeah, and if you're enjoying us, give us some um, nice ratings. We, we, <laughs> our Spotify is currently on 4.2 stars. We need a few more points. I think that's a bit harsh. Yeah, but at least it ain't 4.1 <laughs> star. Oh, 1.4. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's true. But yeah, please tell all your friends and your family if you join the pod, if you, um, you know, recommend us and whatnot. We'd really love it. Love you long time. And yeah, uh, yeah have a lovely week and we will see you next time. Thanks all the best. God bless. <laughs> <laughs>